This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. He was born in Western Africa, but following the death of his father, he, his mother, and brother relocated permanently to the Bronx. After years of making regrettable decisions, he joined the Navy in 2002 and became a Navy SEAL. He's a writer. He's a filmmaker. He's a best-selling author. He's an aspiring Hollywood movie star. He is Remy Adeleke, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, hey thank you so much for having me on, brother. I appreciate yeah, you, it's, this is all, it's all worked out. It's lined up. Um, I know we've been yeah. talking about it for months. I know we've been touching base on something completely separate called SAS, and um, and uh, it's called Special Forces here in the United States. It's SAS Around the Globe TV show that we both have these unique parallels. We're both team guys, and we both have been on uh, that show uh, as instructors, which was uh, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, um, definitely awesome experience. Yeah. Um, all right. As every other show, we're going to roll right into your rapid fire, which will allow us to warm up, get to know each other, yeah. and have yeah. some fun. So here we go. Two choices, you pick one, and then we'll circle back around and talk about why you picked what you picked, okay? All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, butt plugs or ball gag? What was the second one? I missed the second one. Uh, the gag, the ball gag. Just have a ball in your mouth. Which one do you like? Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, you don't have to answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right here's the real ones okay starting with the real ones here we go all right run or swim run run uh flee or fight fight would you rather have six fingers or six toes six fingers six fingers good or bad good <laughs> the middle of nowhere or the middle of everything? Uh, middle of nowhere. Sniper or breacher? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> sniper. Sniper. On camera or behind the camera? That's easy behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Underwater or in the clouds? 
in the clouds. In the clouds. Uh, drown or burn? Drown. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm drowned for a new drowning. <laughs> um, an air choke or a blood choke? Air choke. Air. You said air? Yeah. All right. Air choke. Okay. That's all 10 of them. That wasn't too bad. Okay. Yeah. I gave you run versus swim. You pick run. Why is that? Because uh, uh, I haven't swam in a long time, uh, as much as I should be swimming. Last time I swam was on the uh, Special Forces Fox show. And uh, I want to make sure whatever I do, I'm as proficient as it, in it as possible. And I did a run yesterday. I did a run today. So uh, I know if I need to run, I can, I can get that done as efficient as possible. So for me, it's all about efficiency. Yeah, I like that. I like that answer. It's not just picking the thing you like. It's picking whatever you're good at for the moment. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah, that's smart. Um, flee versus fight. You pick fight. Yeah, yeah. I've just been, I've been a fighter my entire life. Um, you know, as I'm sure we'll touch on, I grew up in the Bronx, grew up fighting, grew up getting jumped, beat up, seeing people get beat up. I, mean, I grew up in an environment where you had to fight to survive. There was no running. If you ran away, you were considered a coward and uh, you would just get picked on and bullied, called bully now, but you would get your ass beat, you know, uh, every time you were seen. So you had to stand up and fight. I remember even when I was like around seven, eight, nine, the older kids in our neighborhood, they would get chalked and create a, a, a boxing ring. And we would have to, we, they would bet on the young kids. These were like 16, 17 year old guys. And they would put the, you know, seven, eight year, year olds, they would put us in the ring and it was a slap box of fight and you had no choice but the fight. There was no, I don't want to do this. It was like, you get in there and do it. So uh, I've been fighting all my life and that's just um, part of my nature. So that's why that was the easy, easy pick. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's it's somewhat of a unique upbringing for sure. And uh, would you say that that's still would, would you say that that is still better than growing up in West Africa? hundred percent. I, I, I know for a fact that I wouldn't have been the man that I am uh, if I didn't grow up that way, because when I lived in Nigeria, we were wealthy. We had nannies. We had it all. We had, you know, my dad was super rich. So um i have older siblings that my dad was married about 10 15 years before he met my mom and they all went to boarding school in london when they were like five six seven and they have they they live posh lives easy lives and uh and that that's reflected in the people they are today whereas i had a really really rough upbringing after my father died and we left africa they came to the bronx and but that informed who i am today that gave me the mental toughness, a hundred percent gave me the mental toughness to achieve the things that I've achieved. So, um, I'm grateful for the hard path that, that yeah. uh, that's, I want to be lying about that. Yeah. That's an incredible contrast. And, and, and what's the rumor? Are you like a prince or something? What's, what's the deal with your royalty? Are you royalty status? And so my, 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 uh, my last name, Ade Lake, Ade means crown, Lake means the supreme and my, my full name is actually Ade Remy, which means the crown has appeased me. So my great, my grandfather was a chief in the Yoruba tribe, which is a, um, the Yoruba, there's a few major tribes in, in Nigeria. There's uh, Yoruba House and Igbo. Yoruba is like one of the most prominent tribes 
And so uh, my grandfather was a chief, which was he that's considered to be a king in the tribe. You know, there's not just like one king um, when it comes to uh, uh, tribes. You have multiple. And yeah. so he's one of many. Uh, well, I wouldn't say one of many, but one of a few. And so my father was the firstborn son to my grandfather. My grandfather had like nine wives and he kept on having daughters. And then finally with my grandmother, she produced my my father, who was the firstborn son. So he inherited the title of chief and then obviously the last name Ade Lake. So like ah. I, I remember one time I was on a ship um, with First Marine Division, we were doing some training. And I was well. We, I was in line at the chapel, waiting to go get chow. And these two Nigerians, it's like a scene out of coming of, coming to America. These two Nigerians <laughs> had on their coveralls, and they were walking down the hall together. And, and they stopped, and they turned, and they looked at me, and they looked at my my last name, uh, Adeleke. And it's like you are Adeleke, you are. And they started immediately speaking to me in Yoruba, and. Uh, uh, I, I lost my Yoruba. Yoruba was like one of my first languages, but I lost not having spoken in so many years. And so they just start rattling off in Yoruba. And I'm just like, what? What? And they're like, how can you not speak Yoruba? You are here. I didn't like you. I really took your chief. So, um, so yeah, that's that's my my, uh, my background, my lineage. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. I like all those. That's and, and going from what could have been potentially the posh life to the Bronx and, you know, fighting inside, you know, chalk fighting rings, you know, it's it's quite the contrast. And it's uh, it's pretty cool, man. It's I mean, maybe at the time you're sitting as a little kid inside a chalk ring like, what the fuck am I doing here? But it was like, hey, you better be out for blood because the person <laughs> man, that's about to come towards you, they're out for blood, dude. So it's like you don't even have a chance to think, you know, it's so crazy. I think back on my life and I'm just like, wow, how did I like survive all of that? Um, yeah. Not just survive all of it, but come out, you know, not mentally screwed up, you know, because so many people can come out, especially, you know, being abused as a kid. You know, I mean, because at the end of the day, it was some level of abuse. And I've had other stuff happen to me um, as a kid in the Bronx. You know, I got, I, got, I shared a story in my book, but I got beat to a pulp by a guy who just got out of prison. He was like uh, about 35, just got out of prison for drug dealing. And then his cousin who was like 19 and I was eight at the time. They slammed me on a concrete and just freaking destroyed me. And uh, everybody, I remember everybody in the park, all these adults were just staring and nobody jumped in and helped. And uh, when I finally got, when they finally got done with me and I started walking home, I remember this one guy who had to be about 50 years old. He looked at me and he's like, why didn't you, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you beat him up? I'm like, dude, like they had guns, they had knives. So it was all of these traumas that I had growing up in that, that environment that could have really screwed me up. And I, I know guys um, that I've grown up with, you know, not a lot of guys, but a handful of guys who are screwed up mentally from the way that they were raised. You know, we talk about PTSD in the military, but there's a lot of guys, you know, even to this day, they have PTSD from, the environment always having to look over your shoulder and worrying about whether you're going to get, you know, killed today or whether you're going to, you know, get robbed or whatever the case may be after having that happen to you as a kid for so many years, it, it can screw you up. So, you know, the blessing, as I said, to me, it's not just that I survived, but that I, I came out unscathed mentally. Yeah, no, that's, and you know, those lessons learned as a child, they carry for the rest of your life. So good decision-making skills, you know, to, uh, you know, engage, at the level that you did without going beyond or else you wouldn't be sitting here today. I mean, that's, that's valuable stuff, especially as we kind of move into the future of becoming yeah. a seal. Right. I mean, makes you a whole lot better at your job. 
absolutely absolutely um okay good stuff so far holy shit this is good um six fingers versus six toes <laughs> you pick six fingers yeah i pick six fingers because i, I you know uh, pull-ups have always been my exercise once you know when i got to when i got to uh join the navy i was super skinny you know uh and then when i got to my first command which was naval hospital camp pendleton i started like I watched like the Bud's two, three, four documentary and and uh, just studied that religiously. And I saw that the guys were always doing pull-ups and push-ups and a lot of calisthenics and stuff to, to you know, in training. And so like pull-ups became my thing. And uh, I remember when I got to third phase on the island, we had the, we had the child PT bets. Um, there was yeah. a bet where I had to uh, do 50 pull-ups, full kit with the shape on my back, everything. And I did the 50 pull-ups and got my, got my class out of them. Wet, wet and sandy uh, lunch or cold, you know, nice. <laughs> like, man, it sucks. So, you know, pull-ups have always been my thing and I, I'm always trying to find like a different way with different grips and, you know, um, you know, monkey bar in it versus thumbs over and all that. So it would just be interesting to see how having an extra <laughs> could help me. You know, now I'm stuck on like, I'm, dude, I'm stuck on like 30 straight and I can't go past 30 but before like, Three, four, five years ago, I was able to do fifty straight. So, like, I'm just wondering if having having that extra finger would help me to get. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, grip is a big part of it, and uh, yeah, good, good on you on the fifty. I'll kid it up. I, God, you know, you reflect on those days, and it's like we were like phenomenal shape, and I was the same okay. as you. You know, I went into buds, a skinny dude, but my pound for pound strength, yeah, is you you can't match it. Like your pound for pound strength. Like Bruce Lee, you know, it's like, yeah, if you weigh a buck 50, but can bench 300, that's fucking way better than the 200 pound guy that benches 300, you know, it's, uh, it's such a good little place to be that now I'm what? 40 something i can't even i can't even get back there if i wanted to <laughs> oh, man, there's no way dude especially like with all our joint issues knees shoulders yeah. like it's crazy because i remember you know in third phase before we even went out to the island like i tore my labrum wow. um yeah our, our class got in, in trouble and we had the old course and that day and the instructor was like we don't care you guys are going to run the old course anyway so we ran it in the rain and um there's that obstacle where you're climbing up the rope and and uh you have your feet on the wall kind of like the old batman tv show and my my foot my feet slipped from the rain and i had to make a decision do i like let go and crack my head, back of my head on the little logs behind me or do i just like held on and i held on and all the weight shifted and went crunch 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 around my shoulder so like i was able like i like looking back i don't know how i did it but i was still able to like continue finish the old course and then obviously get through the rest of buds but that injury has like reared its head like in the last like it was like as soon as i got out in 2016 it was like everything just freaking dropped i don't know if it was like one of those things where all the adrenaline is coursing through your veins for the time your entire career and then once you're done and your body is just like all right i'm gonna make you feel everything so like my shoulder there's no way i can i can do the things i used to do with my shoulder and knees i wish i could but you know the deal i mean i'm sure it's the same with you all injuries and stuff oh yeah yeah my shoulders are definitely jacked i've had both of them torn and i've never done surgery but the cure i found is keeping that that shoulder girdle nice and tight through yeah. just regular you know workouts keep yeah. that entire sits muscle group yeah. nice and tight around that rotator cuff and then it keeps me somewhat pain-free and still able to do stuff but yeah it's nothing like 
And obviously when you're healthy. Um, <laughs> all right. Good or bad? And I kind of let your mind wander with this one. You pick good. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I pick good because, you know, uh, you know, I'm of the belief that everything works together for the good of those who love God and all according to his purpose and for them. So, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, bad things happen to me as I kind of touched on uh, lightly. Um, uh, and so, you know, but they've all worked together for the good, you know, in some way um, in my life. Yeah. Even today, like I go through situations working in the film and TV business and things happen and suck. And it's just like, dude, this person lied to me or this person tried to steal money or blah, blah, blah. And uh, I always try to look at the good and find the good. In it. And 99% of the time, there is some type of good that comes out of the situation, you know, um, you know, For maybe, sure. you know, so I was being protected, you know, because, you know, I would have went further into a deal and I would have got screwed even doubly. So, even though the door was closed and I didn't like that it was closed, it was for my benefit. So that's why I chose good because like I said, I've had a lot of crazy things happen even now to this day working at film and TV and I have to find a good in it uh, or I lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. And I think it's a good message and I wish more people, especially these days yeah. would look at it that way, you know, because this whole like victimization, cancel culture bullshit I just don't get it. It's like take ownership in what you got going on and stop trying to blame everybody else or act like it wasn't fair because we're, we're all dealt the unfair card on a regular basis. And um, most of us don't make a scene about it. Yeah. You know? And you probably were raised the same way. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And it's like, where is the parenting yeah, my mom, you know, my mom, dude, like, she was like, I'm not raising no victims. And that was one thing, you know, that that this idea of being a victim because of whatever the case may be, she was just like, no, you're not a victim. And when I screwed up, you know, and I tried to, like, shift blame to a situation with someone else, she'd be like, no, fool, it's your fault. You're not right. a victim. This is, this is nobody else's fault but you. And so, yeah, man, I, it drives me crazy. It's like, you know, victimhood is like currency nowadays. It's like if I could... If, people have figured out that if they could somehow put themselves in the box of a victim, then they could have a job or they could have attention or they could have X, Y, and Z. And it just drives me freaking mad, you know, especially coming like, even just looking at my mom, you know, my mom, you know, she had every right to be a victim. You know, my the Nigerian government stripped, my mom was, my mom was wealthy because of my dad. And so when he died, like she went from rich to poor. And yeah. she could easily be a victim. And then she had to bring these two boys from Africa to the United States, work multiple jobs. She could have easily been a victim. She could have easily freaking found somebody to marry to help take care of her. She never did. And she just put in the work. And so I think that, you know, that that concept of being a victor was modeled for me in my mom. I saw it every single day when my mom could have easily like pulled the victim card. She refused to, to take welfare even though she qualified for where she's just like, I'm not going on welfare. Like I'm going to work all of these jobs that I have to work to figure out a way. There were times my mom didn't have enough food to feed herself. She had just enough food to feed my brother and I, and she didn't complain about it. She didn't say, hey, what was me? She would just put the food on the table and stand in the doorway of the kitchen to watch us eat. And so like, you know, I had this model of a victor who could have easily been a victim. So to this day, it's like, it's hard, it's hard for me to, to swallow people's concept of victimhood, you know? Yeah. And it's one thing that I'm trying to pass on to my kids, like, yo, bro, like, 
I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear nothing, dude. Like I got, I got three boys and a daughter, and I'm like, yo, you guys freaking live a posh life. You know what I mean? Like if you fail a test or you don't get picked for a team or whatever, it's not because of X, Y, because you didn't put in the work. It's that simple. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry for going on that tangent. No, no, that's great. Your mom is uh, obviously admirable, no doubt about it. That's awesome. And it sounds like it rubbed off on you where you're doing what most people should do. And that should be a good parent in the, uh, you know, I, I've tried to stress to my, my own daughter all these years is the most valuable thing you can give your kids is self-discipline, right? The ability to say no to themselves, right? You say no, 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 as many times as it takes until your kids start saying no to themselves. And the day they do that, now they're on the road to success, right? And um, and it's difficult for, it seems, a lot of parents to do that. And you end up with, you know, a lot of kids that, uh, I don't know, they don't seem like they know what the fuck they're doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. We got middle of nowhere or middle of everything. Yeah. And you pick middle of nowhere, which I totally agree. But Yeah. You know, yeah. I think, you know, middle of nowhere historically for me has always been the place of great self-reflection, you know, um, when I've been cut off from everything and everybody, um, when I've had things stripped away from me, that's when I've really had the opportunity to stop and, and hold up a mirror to myself and see what I've become and, 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 and see where I can get better and how I can get better and where my faults are in life. You know, um, it wasn't until my, my, uh, until I got out to Kodiak, Alaska, actually, that I, I that, that I, I, I recognized that. Um, because when I was out in Kodiak, Kodiak, we were in the middle of nowhere. We had to do the land nav, land nav survival. And we had to, we, I think it was only like 28 of us or something like that. So we were dispersed in a way where we want to see each other all day long. Like for, we went to see each other until we got all the way back to our base camp. And there were no cell phones, no technology. And it was just silence and trees and snow and Kodiak bears roaming around. And all. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. all I had was like myself and, and uh, that was good. And I took advantage of that. And so every time I find myself in these situations where I'm by myself away from everybody, I, I really try to say, Hey, where am I? I really try to hold a mirror to myself. Say, Hey, Remy, where are your faults? Where can you get better? Like, uh, this is no distractions right now distracting you from from the truth like this is just rawness it's just you by yourself and so that's why and that's where i grow the most you know is being in the middle of nowhere and uh and not not just physically but figuratively as well you know being in a situation where the phone's not ringing and i don't have work and i and 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 things are not happening the way i expected it to and i'm just by myself you know, those that, those are the best moments in my life. That's where the most most growth and, and the best ideas come from for me. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm the same. I'd, I'd rather be in the middle of nowhere, but it goes down the path of just like, I don't want any people around me. <laughs> it's a far more simpler concept than yours, but yeah, I don't want to get the fuck away from me. I don't like you. Get away. <laughs> I, got, I got four kids, so I all right, sniper versus breacher, tough decision, but you pick sniper. Yeah, yeah, I picked. You know, um, I was in the, uh, I was a corpsman in the uh, Marine Scout Snipers. I was attached to a Scout Sniper platoon, 
And uh, that's when I really got to, you know, get behind the gun and learn all of the, all of the, uh, uh, all of the standards behind a sniper rifle and, and, and specifically how it was used and, and uh, uh, scouting and all of that stuff. And uh, so that's kind of why I threw it out there. I wasn't a sniper in the teams, but it, I just, I just had a great time being with the with the snipers and, and, and the marines and learning from them and just seeing how they operated and how professional they were like just like focus was like their gun was like their wife it was like their love and, and it was the weirdest thing but uh that's why I picked another reason why I picked snipers because wow man I just know how with the TBI and how guys have gotten their bell rung from being a you know doing a breacher job and, and all that how it's had effects over the years in their lives so um, that's why I pick sniper, you know. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I tend to throw. I like that one because the breacher is usually up at the front and part of a team and kind of surrounded by his buddies. Where the snipers are more of your solo operator. Um, both are very important positions, but kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum tactically. And um, yeah, it's always interesting to see what guys pick. But uh, yeah, I like it. I mean, you obviously hanging with uh, a marine sniper team is a big deal. That's a cool experience. Um, and I think people know at this point, like the Marine snipers kind of wrote the book and they're fucking incredible. And even us, the Naval Special Warfare guys, we kind of, we had the pleasure of taking, you know, the best from the Marine school and the army schools and even some of our buddies over in England and putting together our sniper school. So that's why we say ours is better than everybody's because it's a little more global, but <laughs> that's still Marine snipers are still badasses. <clears throat> um, on camera or behind the camera? You pick behind the camera. Yeah, you know, um, when I got into the business uh, back in 2016, I was on camera, but I was also doing consulting. Uh, but that's when I really got to being on set is when I really got to learn where the power is and where the creativity is. And I've always been creative ever since a kid. I was a small kid. I remember being in my bedroom and getting a bunch of papers and creating like this with paper creating this big like mothership spaceship and then i got these like this some more paper and i made these small miniature spaceship spaceships that went into the big mothership and i've always had this creative mind and i think i get it from my dad because my dad was an engineer and so when i got to set and i really saw how made movies were made that's why i was like all right i want to be a filmmaker this is what i want to do and all on camera stuff that i do I do it not because I want to be an actor. I have no desire to be an actor. I have no desire to act. For me, it's my film school. It's where I learn about camera movements. It's where I learn how to direct actors. It's where I learn how to communicate to a crew. And so all of those TV shows and films that I've done have, have all been my film school to the point where now I'm actually writing films and I'm in the WGAs and WGA writing, having got accredited writing for writing a TV series and now writing movies and now directing movies. So that's that's my uh that's why I, I love being behind the camera. I, I love storytelling from that from that standpoint. And I love being able to use story to change and spot and inspire lives because I know it was story that really informed me and taught me about the seal of the world one. It taught me that I could be something other than a drug dealer and which I did in the Bronx or an athlete, which I did in the Bronx or a rapper, which I did all those things in the Bronx because that's all that was projected to me. And uh, it wasn't until I saw Bad Boys where I was like, huh, I can be a hero. I can do something other than selling drugs. Like there's something out there for somebody like me. And then I sort of 
which was like a really like impactful film because that was the first time I was exposed to Navy SEALs. And that's when I was like, wow, if I ever turn my life around, that's what I want to do. I want to be a Navy SEAL. But it was movies. Those, those were movies that changed the trajectory of my life. And so I just love the idea of being able to now in return do that by building a story from the ground up. You know, I was able to do a human trafficking film, a short film um, called The Unexpected. And I, the primary reason why I made that film was to inform and educate people on the realities of organ harvesting and how intricate these organ harvesting rings are because organ harvesting is very, very underreported. And, you know, and I've had so many people watch the film on YouTube and they comment and just like, wow, I didn't know this happened. Wow, like I want to get involved in the fight against human trafficking because this is such an atrocity. And so when I get these messages, that's when I'm like, wow, like the purpose that I've had, that I've, that I've felt to make film and to tell story for the purpose of changing, educating, inspiring lives, it's being I'm fulfilling that purpose. And so filmmaking and being behind the camera is absolutely everything to me. It's 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 what wakes me up in the morning. Um and so so yeah. You know, that's a great um I mean I think I would have at first I was thinking, oh he'll probably say on camera because I remember like taking a picture of you on some movie I was watching, right? I'm watching a movie and there you are. I took a picture. I texted it to you. Yeah. I think it was, was it ambulance? I think it was that the one ambulance. Yeah. ambulance. You, you were, you were a cop in that one and you had yeah. some pretty, right. And you had some speaking roles you were like bad cops though. Right. Or you, you, I, was a, well, I, was a, I was an undercover cop. I was a good cop. Like at first we, we, I was an undercover cop that was like playing a bad guy. And then you find out like I'm actually a good guy. I'm just an undercover cop. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and then I think I saw you. I've seen you in a bunch of stuff. So I was like, oh, this guy is definitely like the on camera guy. But um, I will say this, though. I mean, overall, like seals in Hollywood um, have done a really good job. Right. I mean, uh, Kevin Kent with all of his tactical advising and then even his on camera time with things like Jack Ryan, which did you ever do any Jack Ryan stuff? No, I never did Jack Ryan. Never did Jack Ryan. But you did help out our buddy Jack Carr, right? Did yeah. you help out with Terminal List? Yeah, I was on Terminal List. I did uh, Terminal List. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and those of you that haven't heard the interview with Jack, you know, obviously, you got to go back to last season when Jack was on the show. Go check it out. Um, and then uh, what else? What are some of the Transformers? Some of the big ones where there's a lot of team guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Transformers, yeah, there was a few team guys. Yeah, there was yeah, actually no, there were more than a few. Kevin Kent was on that. Um, Harry Humphreys, uh, Ryan Sangster. Uh, there was a bunch of team guys on that. Uh, Jared Shaw, which Jared Shaw is like one of the producers on Terminalist because he's the one that actually found the Terminalist. Well, not found, but Jack Carr gave him the book and then he gave the book to his best friend, Chris Pratt. And then, yeah, what a, I mean, how that is unheard of, right? I mean, going from novel to series in that amount of time is without a that's got to be like some kind of fucking Guinness Books world record deal, man. Sure, man. Yeah, you, you look at like Robert Ludlum with the entire Jason Bourne series. Nobody first, nobody knows who the fuck robert ludlam is yeah. <laughs> um, but those books didn't turn into movies until 20 plus years later you know what i mean so jack's pulled off the impossible which is awesome and you know and and obviously you're crushing it too out there which uh 
you know, what's it like being uh, a team guy in that liberal of a world? Or do you find pockets of like-minded folks? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's tough, brother. It's, it's tough. And it's, the interesting thing is they don't, they don't really respect and acknowledge the team guy side, which is interesting. Which I've heard is, that. Yeah. Like, it's like, they don't just, they don't care. They're like, yeah, whatever. They don't care. They're, they're like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, you know, it's almost like somebody coming to a SEAL platoon and being like, well, I was, uh, I was with the army infantry. Like, let me roll out with you guys and be a part of your, your op. We're going to be like, dude, whatever. Like, you're not going on op with us. You're like, like just because you did you know, a combat deployment, right? With the army infantry. So it's just one of those things where it's like, you have to start from the ground up um, because they don't care. And it's all about content. Like content is king. So unless you have like a piece of IP that's, that's really, really like important to them and they, can, they see that they can flip, then you are like literally nothing to them. And, but, but when they do find something like, you know, the Jack Carr series, the uh, Terminal series, it's like, wow, this is something that could be like very successful for our platform. And it's like, they, they, they kind of respect you and they kind of like, hey, uh, we want to work you. But at the same time, they're like, all right, let's let's see how much power we can strip from that from this person so that we can go do it our way, you know? Yeah. And it, that was the genius in the way Jack did his deal and how he packaged it with Chris Pratt because Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt has so much, not just star power, but power in the business as well because he puts butts in seats. So when he had Chris Pratt jump on board and then Antoine Fuqua, who's been in the business, jump on board, you know, those guys were just like, hey, we're going to protect you. We're going to protect the story. We're going to make sure it's told accurately. We're going to be like a three-headed monster, essentially, working this together. You know, uh, you came up with the story. You have the idea. I have the star power as an actor. Antoine Fuqua has the star, star power and experience as a director. People respect him. And that's how we're going to roll this thing. And that's why the show was what it was, because, you know, there's so many other shows like, you know, I don't want to mention any names, but there was a, a, a very well-known book um, that came that's been in that's been out for a long time, and uh, you know, a big studio picked it up and they made a movie, and the movie was atrocious. The movie was absolutely atrocious, and you know, they kicked the writer off, and they just said, "Hey, go and you wrote the book. We don't want you to have much of anything to do with it, and uh, we're going to make our our movie." Uh, we, since we bought the IP from you, we bought the the, the film rights, and so uh, we're gonna do it. And they did it, and, and it was it was it was acts, you know. And uh, and so that's that that was the benefit of uh, of having Dark Cry. And it's interestingly, like I have a buddy of mine who's an author, and uh, he has a book series out now, and it's a really really good book series. Uh, and this particular guy was a former agency guy, and he got into thriller writing, and. Uh, you know, because he wasn't able to really partner with somebody of prestige and excellence, somebody with power, you know, when he went to the negotiating table to turn his book into a TV series, like they were just, they, they kicked him off as an EP. They said, all right, we're not giving you an executive producer credit, which is every author, typically most authors get an executive producer credit um, on, on when their book is turned into a TV series, which is a significant credit because that gives them power. And that also puts a lot of money in their pocket every time an episode airs. And so they said, we're only going to do this if you take a consulting producer credit. And, you know, because again, because he didn't have the right 
people, you know, he had to take that deal. And it was one of those things where it's like, hey, I, I need to take the deal because I, I want to sell more books because if this show gets made, then I'll be able to sell more books. And that's where my business is primarily. And so it's all about, you know, it's all about, you know, finding people who respect you in this business because a lot of people in this business won't respect you. You know, I've had people tell me like, dude, you're, you know, I can find anybody to tell, uh, you know, an espionage story or tell a particular story. Like I wrote this film about the, uh, called uh, The Last Shall Be First. And it's a true story about the first group of African-Americans to serve as special operations. And uh, I remember a particular guy, long story short, but he was like, I like it. And they wanted to package it together with a bunch of other films to take to a studio for like a studio deal. And essentially what it turned into was if you don't do this deal, then we can find somebody else. We can find any other writer to write something like this. Any other writer can talk Google writer. We don't need it just because you want to know. So, you know, they, they, they really feel like they have uh, the power to disrespect you and, uh, and, and not respect you, you know, but so it's a very, it's a weird business, man, but it's one of those things. It's, it's like, you know, a lot of people quit though. You know, a lot of people go to Hollywood and, and the turnover rate is like, like buds almost like, I think that there was a report that came out a couple of years ago where I think every year, uh, I think it's like 5 million people, new people arrive to Hollywood with the dreams of being an actor or a director or a producer from all around the world. And then like every year, like six or 7 million people leave. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Yeah, man. I have, I've had my own experiences, uh, not as in depth as yours, but like, Hunter Deli skills, for example, has been optioned like six times. You get the green light, you get funding, they make all these promises, and then all of a sudden it just goes, they just go crickets on you. Like, eh, no, yeah. we're not doing it now. Yeah, we just decided not to do it. And I mean, it's been time and time again to the point now where I'm just like, whatever. I don't really, actually, I don't care. You know, it's yeah. like, you, you know, take it, leave it. I really, I just, at first, I kind of, you know, you get your hopes up and you, and then you learn by being let down so many different times by folks out there that now I just look at it like, whatever, man, you guys are all fucking filthy. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And that's kind like, of the attitude you have to have. You kind of have to have the attitude of, you know, I don't care. Like, if you don't make, I don't care. I still got my other stuff going. And, you know, and that's why I try to tell people like, when they come to Hollywood, I'm like, yo, you got to make sure that, that, that you have other stuff. That's gonna that you're passionate about. That's gonna occupy your time. So when the rejection comes, you be like, I don't care. Screw it. I got this other stuff going on as well. So um, that's what was the book? Was it a was it a, a, a fiction thriller series? Was it a uh, was it a what would you say it was an option for what kind of project? Yeah, my my first couple of books, Hundred Deadly Skills. You know, when it hit the New York Times, they I mean, I had all kinds of folks optioning it. It was production companies out there and then they carried it all the way up through Discovery's uh, head shed. And then, you know, it gets to a certain point and it died on the vine. Um, same, it, it happened several times, different production companies, different networks, but always same result. Um, and, you know, they wanted to take and turn the book into like, one was a competition type series. And yeah. then another time they wanted to actually uh, do it more like a, a Bear Grylls style, you know, except, you know, it's the American and it's more urban, you know, instead of out in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, there was there's different variants we went through over the years, but man, it was always the same like shitty result. <laughs> well, I tell you, we, we need we need to connect offline because uh, right now a lot of unscripted content is being purchased because of the WGA writer strike. Yeah. And so I can connect you with my agent, man, and uh, because right now like everybody's like, all right, we need to fill fill content because or oh, we're gonna lose advertiser money. Yeah. So, oh, I'm sure. Last writer strike was a uh, hundred days. The writer strike prior to that was 153 days, and the, the last writer strike was in 2007. And that's when the boom of reality TV. That's when it really took off like exponentially that year, 2007, 2008, because there were there was no scripted TV being made because of writer strike. Like legally, it couldn't be made, and so you know reality TV TV blew up. So I mean, now is a time where a lot of studios, a lot of networks. Or, I mean, I just read an article last night that Fox just resurrected a uh, a reality cooking show that was on the air ten years ago. They got canceled. They just resurrected it, and they're gonna it's gonna go into it's gonna go to, to season this this year because they they have they have to fill this airtime with something, you know. If they're not gonna strip the TV, so it's a prime time, you know, um, to to sell. So okay, well, I'll oh, hit you up. I can connect you with my age. <laughs> That's cool. All right. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm always open, but God, I just hate the outcomes. Um, okay, well, we got off on a good tangent there. I like that one. Okay, um, underwater or in the clouds? You picked in the clouds. Yeah, I love jumping. I love skydiving, man. Um, <laughs> I will admit, my first jump, I was scared to death. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what everybody. Yeah, I loved it, man. So um, it's just there's a piece about being in the air and just falling and just you know doing something that you know 99 percent of the people on this planet will never do so that's why i picked in the air I just yeah love it. it's a certain level of freedom i feel i feel it's the same level of freedom when you're falling to also just you know those rare instances where you get a uh you know a recreational dive in uh you know and you can like free fall you know some underwater canyon it's kind of the same right it's just so cool yeah, and then also look at too, man, with junking, the one thing that I learned years ago is it really reminds you of the reality of death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think so many, so many people, like, they forget. I think most people forget, especially young people, they forget that one day they're going to die. Like, the reality is we are all going to die. You know, 100 years from now, most people on the earth now will not be on the earth 100 years from now. We'll be gone, long for guy. And I think because people don't realize the inevitability of death, I think they make reckless decisions. They don't live life passionately. They don't live life intentionally. And every time I skydive, I go skydive, I'm going up in the plane, the reality, I'm reminded, dude, I could die. Like something, you know, I could have a malfunction that could be catastrophic. Like, you know, I could pass out and, you know, my cypress fails and I hit the deck. Like, I can die. This can be it. This can be it. And it's and it's a good reminder. So when I do get back down to the ground and I'm alive and I, and I survive, it's like I'm more intentional about how I'm living life. And so that's one of the, the big things I love about skydiving is it's that needed reminder of the inevitability of death. And I think a lot of people need that, especially young people need that reminder because 
And I think that that's why we're in so many, so a lot of the issues we have in our country and in the world today is because of the absence of that, that reality, that thought, you know? So um, I think people would live differently if they, they remember that, hey, dude, you know, tomorrow's not promised. So um, that, that's why I chose air because of that, that, that key reminder. Yeah, I like that. I mean, consequence, right? There's a lack of it these days. Conse- and when you know there's consequence, then you learn to also appreciate. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's missing. Um, and speaking of death, drown versus burn. <laughs> you pick drown. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I tell you, if it depends on how hot, because what people don't know about fire yeah. is if you can go straight to third degree burns, like super intense heat, you never f- actually feel it because it gets to your nerves and fucking wipes them out long before you feel the pain. So I'm like, okay, if I could burn to death and it's guaranteed third degree immediately because it's that fucking hot, then maybe it's not such a bad way to go. But drowning is, I think, that's another whole other world. But you said you had a near drowning event, so you kind of know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's like a near drowning slash shadow water blackout. I was, I was doing a trend uh, and die phase, and uh, I did the five minutes. I did the five minutes with the hands above water, and then I did the uh, the swim down. And on the way back, like I was just like, I don't know what. And all I saw was the, you know, was two the two diving boards at the CTT. I passed the first lower one, and then I. And then I don't remember what happened after that. Oh, and, wow. uh, and, and I went, apparently, like I later found out that when they pulled me out, I was like, took like three or four instructors to jump in and put, get me and pull me back up to the top because I had the dive tank on and the dive belt and all that stuff. But I picked it because it's like, I didn't, it just, I was just like, one minute I'm alive, you know, next minute I'm like, gone. Like, I'm, I'm out of it. And I think that, you know, to be able to kind of go like that, we was just like, Boom, boom. I think there's something peaceful about that. And it's something uh, merciful about that, right? Versus, <laughs> uh, you know, being burned alive, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't want to know either one, but yeah, I don't, it's, it's a, that's a tough one after, if you really look at the science, because the other thing that supports drowning is this thing, and I talk about it all the time with, it relates to a lot of different uh, human physiology, uh, capabilities that we have as mammals it's the mammalian reflex where your airway will automatically lock down and prevent water from coming in so initially so ultimately you 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 suffocate without the water it's usually not the water right you pass out first and then as soon as you pass out then your body will inhale right and now the water floods in so if it's just a pass out thing, then I'm like, okay, maybe I'll do the drowning thing. I don't know. But that seems, if you're panicking and drowning, it's hard for the mammalian reflex to kick in. So you've got to calmly drown in order to die peacefully, I think. I don't know. <laughs> All right. In the waterboarding um, type situation where you're like, <laughs> like in a bucket of water or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then on that note, we have the air choke versus the blood choke. And I wasn't sure. Are you like a jujitsu guy, grappling guy, or where are you at with stuff? Oh, you know, I, you know, I haven't, I haven't gotten into it as much as I should have, just because I've just been so preoccupied with other stuff. Um, uh, and so I'm not. Um, the last time I did hand in hands, like quote unquote hand in hand combat stuff was, you know, this the C was it the C uh, 
CQD. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. The Dieter back, stuff. Dieter stuff back in the day, you know? Yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, it's, it's, I don't even know the difference between the two, but the air sound better to be than the blood. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, you, you talking about this being done to me or being done to somebody else? <laughs> air sounds better than blood. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, you may or may not see that again here pretty soon. So we'll talk about real quick. In in a rear naked chokehold, which in the world of jujitsu, naked means you're not using or leveraging clothing oh, or sorry, anything else. Oh, you said rear. I thought you said air. No, no, said- it is air, air. Yeah. Oh, air, okay. but, so, but there are two different ways of conducting the choke itself where um, one is – you're cutting off the trachea, you're cutting off air, and then the person eventually borderline suffocates and there's a higher level of death, right? Whereas with a blood choke, you're cutting off the carotids where you're cutting off blood and then they pass out, they go limp, and as soon as you let off, the blood flow immediately comes back and boom, you know, they, they're back to they're back to conscious, right? Um, so... You know, it's two different ways of doing it, depending on the level of threat and what's going on. And sometimes even the position that you find yourself in, you may not be able to get your get their neck deep enough into your elbow to conduct the proper blood choke. But you can get that air choke, which is sometimes easier, especially guys like you and I with like these big ass Adam's apples sticking out. (laughs) But um, anyway, you may or may not see that again here in the future. Okay. Well, hey, good job. You got it. We, we got through the rapid fire with a lot of great, great conversation and points. So I appreciate that. We will be right back after the break. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We've touched on you growing up in Nigeria, and it was up till uh, what? What age was that? Eight? Uh, five. Uh, I was. I was five. I was nineteen. Oh, five. Yeah. five. And you moved to the Bronx. Um, you saw a movie. So, kind of talk us through your experience rolling into the SEAL teams and. What I'm really curious about, and I know that I can talk freely to you about this because it's such a topic these days in the media and everything that's going on, and that is like race stuff. And I'm curious, you being a true African-American, right? Like, no shit. I mean, I don't mean to offend anybody else, but, you know, you came from Africa, right? You know, just in this same exact lifespan, 
And now you are a success success here in America. What are your thoughts on all this? That's everything that's been going on. And I don't, and it's not to try and push any political agenda because I don't, I personally don't care. And I felt like personally, and I'm curious in the SEAL teams, I felt like we didn't have time for racism and all this bullshit that once I get out and I start seeing it, and I'm like, is it real or is it not? I don't know. What do you what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, all I could do is speak from my experience. And you know, along with the in the teams, like that was the first community job I can say that I had where it was purely performance-based. It wasn't about whether you were black, Asian, Spanish, white. It was all about, hey, can you do your job? Are you earning your trident every day? And you know. That's what I loved about the SEAL teams. And I mean, I think that that starts in Buds too, right? Because even in Buds, like the instructors don't care. I mean, they don't care. Like the company, they just want to know, like, do you have what it takes to be a frogman? And right. so I never experienced race. And I have a lot of people, like, I remember one time this, this, uh, this reporter from some major news outlet, he called me up out of the blue. I don't know how he got my number. And he was like, hey, you mind doing an interview with me right now? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Actually, it was from NPR. And uh, um, we started talking and he asked answering his questions and he got on the topic of racism. And then like, he kept on probing to try to get me to say say that the SEAL teams were racist. And I was like, listen, bro, like I I, I pretty much like at the end, I I kind of summed up, I was like, listen, you know, I was like one of the only black dudes graduated my book. You know, I was the only black dude who graduated my class. I didn't experience any racism there. Got to my SEAL team. You know, I had, you know, my first year in my SEAL team, I was like junior Navy SEAL of the, of the year of my command. My second year of the SEAL team, I got an early promote. The third year in my SEAL team, I got selected for a national level tasker. My fourth year in SEAL team, I did a tier one operation because of my, my background. Like if the teams was racist, then I wouldn't have had that trajectory in my career. So it was, so what I, I said, it's, 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 I know what you're looking for. You're looking to, for me to give you the answer to say the SEAL teams are racist because there's not that many blacks in the SEAL teams. That's not the case. So then he went on, it was like, well, well what is that? Because there has to be an explanation. It's why it's like 99% white and like only like 1% African American. It has to be something. There has to be some type of conspiracy. I was like, no, I said, at the end of the day, you know, the reality is it goes back to education. It goes back to education. I grew up in the Bronx. In the Bronx, we don't have freaking the military coming to our schools and talking about like X, Y, Z. And I can, again, speaking from experience, when I tried to go back to my high school to share my life and my story, this is like after I was out of the military, to try and inspire these kids in the hood. I mean, my, my high school I went to, these kids getting killing teachers. There's killed teachers in my school, killing chubs. Like, it's in the hood. I went to D. Wick Clan High School. Yeah. I can't, I can't even get in. They won't let me come speak. I have to go through so much red tape in order to come share my life with these kids and say, hey, look, this is me. This is what I became. You can become this too. You don't have to do X, Y, and Z. And they will not let me in. And who, so, who is, but who is they? Who doesn't let uh, the school system? Like I, I go to the I go to the dentist and well you got to go you got to fill out this paper fill out that paper I fill out the paper uh, it has to get approved oh well the city doesn't want won't allow it and they they the schools won't allow me to come in every inner city school not just in New York City but in other parts of the country you know that I've tried to go into I can't get in but fast forward to like you know born uh, Michigan High School which is in you know it's not an inner city school it's a very nice 
you know, area, dude, the teachers reach out, hey, come on in. Do I got to fill out paper? No, we ain't got to fill out paper. Just come on in. We'll let you in. We want you to come in and talk to our kids. So it's something going on in these inner cities where, you know, in my opinion, I just think that a lot of people, going back to what we talked about with the victimhood, a lot of people feel, I think in, in politics, a lot of politicians feel like if I can keep minorities under this idea of being victims, like if I can keep them, in, then then they will, then 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 I'll have their vote. Then I'll have their vote, and things will essentially go my way, you know. And uh, and I, I think that that's a major issue because at the end of the day, and the education system in every inner city school, I again speaking from experience, is horrible. It's horrible. It's for it. I remember being in school sometime and the teachers would just sit down and they're just like, all right, we know that you guys ain't going to learn whatever. So I'm not going to teach. I'm just going to wait for the clock to, to pass and wait for the next period to come and wait for the next students to come in. You know what I mean? And, and you know, the graduation, I mean, when I was when I was in high school, I think the dropout rate was like somewhere around like 75, 80 percent, the high school dropout rate. You know what I mean? It was common for people to get GEDs. Why is that? It all comes back down to education. And this was one thing I was trying to explain to this reporter. I was like, you're trying to find these other reasons as to why, you know, as to why the SEAL team doesn't allow black people, as many black people to come into the community, but you got to go to the root. You got to go to, you know, what's going on in the inner city? What's going on in the education system? Why, why aren't there any pools or rec centers? There's no pools where you can actually go swim at in the Bronx swim laps. Like that doesn't exist. Like we're the resources that, that the inner city should have and who are in charge of those resources and where are those resources that inner cities should, should have that's going to make kids successful, you know, that's going to expose kids. And that's, and again, that's another part of it on the education side of things. It's the exposure. My brother, he's an engineer. He's a super brilliant guy. He ended up getting a he graduated high school in three years, got a full ride scholarship to study engineering at uh, Syracuse university got a full-ride scholarship to get his master's, got his bachelor's, got his master's. But why did he become an engineer? Because he was exposed to it. He was exposed to it because he saw that my dad was an engineer. How, why did I became, become a Navy SEAL? Because I was eventually exposed to it through the film. What, through film. What else was I exposed to? I was exposed to rappers. I was exposed to drug dealers and, 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 and exposed to playing sports and doing that. So that, those are the things I did. And a lot of these kids in the inner city it's what they're exposed to. Now, this idea in my this idea that, you know, you know, white man holds a black person down and, and they black person can't be anything because of like I have to reject that idea from experience and not just my experience. Dude, I got I got I got half so I know some as I mentioned, my brother's an engineer. You know, he works for the DOE, he was working for Saudi Ramco making seven hundred thousand dollars a year. He grew up in the same hood I grew up in. My half brother who grew up down the street from me in the Bronx, he's an ER doctor, single parent home, just like I did. He's an ER doctor. My half sister, you know, she grew up in Queens. She is, she went to the top MBA, MBA uh, freaking program in Chicago. And she's one of the top business consultants in Connecticut. I have another freaking uh, brother who's a lawyer. I have another brother who's about to uh, go to medical school. I have a cousin who, you know, who's black and and and, and freaking Texas. Well, he from Texas, but he freaking he has a he he's at MIT on a scholarship. I think he's like a triple major. He's majoring in mathematics, uh, engineering, and biology. Right. So for me, it's like it's like what is it? Is like if if our culture, if America kept 
black people from being successful, like, why is it that these pockets of people that I know, my family members, even some friends that I grew up with, why is it that they've been able to rise to these ranks, you know, rise into these, into these situations where they're super successful, you know? And so, you know, it's just, again, when I speak on these topics, like, I hate to speak for, well, it's because the statistics say this or this or that, or this, or, all I can do is speak from my experience. You know, I've been able to rise through the ranks and yeah, you know, when I was growing up in the Bronx, did I experience racism? Like, I have, yeah, man, I do. I freaking got stories in my book where freaking I got thrown in jail and like, you know, for nothing, for just like literally eating in a McDonald's, standing up. You know what I mean? I've, I, I watched cops beat the brakes off of freaking, you know, people in the train station. I saw that happen, like Italian cops, like, you motherfucking, you know what I mean? Like, I saw when I that movie too. That stuff does happen. I'm not saying that racism does, doesn't happen. I'm not saying that I didn't, that I, I did not experience racism. I did. But to say that racism has kept me from now being, you know, super successful, being an author, being a freaking Navy SEAL, being a filmmaker, being like, how it has that stifled me from becoming what I have become and kept me from it? It's hard for me to say yes based off my experience. Now, did I have to work a little bit harder? You know, yeah, like in SEAL training, like the reality is when you're one of freaking 200 black dudes in your class, like you can't hop. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody, like, you can't hide from those bucks. You screw up, the instructor's gonna know you screw up because every the other 10 dudes with the last name Peterson and Johnny or Van Nick or whatever their name is, like the instructors are not gonna remember them as much as they're gonna remember you. So I was highlighted more, but like I can't say that that's racism. That's just the nature of the situation where I'm just one of one of the black dudes in a class. So, you know, I I just think that, you know. Yeah, I, I think some people try to use it as a way to, I don't I, I just feel like people sometimes use a race card, not all the time, but sometimes use a race race card as an excuse, you know, to to say, well, I can't be this, you know, I can't be that, you know, and, and you know, all I could do again is speak from my experience because things were as some people project saying, hey, like America is like egregiously, like to this day, like I can't speak for 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. I can't speak 100 years ago. I can't speak for that. I'm talking about right now. Like, you know, I, it, it's hard for me to believe that Americans are egregiously racist when I'm looking at all of these people in my life and people that I know, including myself, who have grown up in the inner city, who've grown up in single parent homes, and they have reached the pinnacle of success and they didn't have a handout they didn't have someone like dude i'll tell you a story about my brother my brother he went to um he went to kennedy high school in the bronx it's like bad high school bad high school and uh you know and this and this i think this is an example of like this is a good like racism example i would say and uh he uh he like say he was taking ap classes in his junior year like he was eligible to graduate in his junior year because the dude was just like, he just put in the work. And, and, and let me back up for a second. It wasn't a situation where he was just naturally gifted. 
a switch went off in his head when he was like 11 years old. He did. He, my brother, he stuttered a lot as a kid and he didn't do well in school. And one day my mom came home and from working like the third or fourth job, however many jobs she had worked that day. And, you know, she saw my brother's report card and my brother's a year old and he's the oldest. And he had like failed like everything and C's or failed everything. And my mom just broke down crying. And she was just like, by him, like, you're the oldest, like, I'm struggling. Like, I need you to make it. I need you to do good. And like my mom, she just had like, she had a breakdown and a switch went off in my brother's head. And from that point on, like, he didn't go outside and play anymore. Like, he would go from school to the library and study. He would go, like, it was it was school, library, home. School, library, home. And so he was just repetitious and, 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 and relentless. And that's what went fast forward when he got to high school. You know, again, he, he was taking AP classes now. When he went to go see his senior counselor, you know, as he was preparing to, like, start submitting... Uh, college applications, uh, his, his, his counselor was like, hey, you should go to a trade school. Like, you don't need to go to college. Like, you know, a lot of kids that come from here, they don't do good in college. I don't want you to waste your time, right? And this guy, this guy was a white guy, right? And he was like, so you just need to go to a trade school and then maybe you could be a welder or whatever the case may be. Now, is there a level of racism in that? I would probably say yes, because this guy is like looking at my brother and, 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 and you know, and my brother's black and looking at all other black and Hispanic kids, essentially saying, hey, like, you ain't good enough to be an engineer or be X, Y, Z. But my brother didn't accept that at all. My brother did not accept that. My brother was just like, okay, I know you're saying this and maybe there's some bias, maybe there's some racism there, but I'm, I'm, I reject that. I reject that. And I'm going to make the choice to do what I know I could do. And he applied to a bunch of colleges and ended up getting a full-ride academic scholarship to study engineering at Syracuse University. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, we still, we always have a choice. We always have a choice. And like we were talking about earlier, we could choose to be the victim. We could choose to say, you know what? You know, my brother could have chose to say, oh, you know what? Like, he could have chosen to go to trade school and then like freaking be miserable at trade school and then like, you know, not have a good job and stuck in the cycle of like poverty, you know, because he just got it. And now some people with trades, they do good, they make a lot of money. But my brother could have made that and gone down that path and be like, oh, it's because of that white guy and he was racist and he freaking, I could have been, I could have been better. I could have been somebody like the freaking Marlon Brandos and I could have been somebody. But he didn't make that choice. And and he made the choice to go in, in, in the opposite direction. So I know I said a lot about it, but I think that, you know, again, is there, is there, are there pockets of racism? Are there racist situations? Are there people who, you know, they just don't like particular people and they're just like, hey, I'm not going to like you. Are there Asians who don't like black people? Are there black people who don't like Asian people? Are there white people who don't like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is. But um, to say that that puts every black person in a position where they can't succeed in America, when you have so many black people that have succeeded in America, it's, that's tough for me to swallow. Now, here's what I would say, going a step further. Dude, my dad, he left Nigeria. He left Nigeria for when he was a kid. He got a scholarship to study architecture and engineering in, in London University, because my dad was really, really smart. Went to Nigeria, went to London, 
graduated, got his bachelor's and his master's in architecture and engineering, was the first black man on the board of the British Financial Planning Council in Great Britain, came to America, was one of the first black men on the board of the World Trade Center in New York City, amassed a bunch of wealth in the West, super successful, had all of these businesses, architecture firms, engineering firms, you name it, he had it, he was doing business deals all over the world. He decided, hey, I want to come back to my country. I want to go back to Nigeria because Nigeria has so many resources. We have, we have gold, we have natural gas, we have oil, you have cocoa, you have, you have all kinds of, you get so many natural resources where Nigeria can be like America. Nigeria can be like the West, can be like Saudi Arabia because of how rich it is in resources. And so what my dad was trying to do was he was trying to build a Wall Street in Nigeria. Like, and he bought like a massive plot of land for 8 million pounds in like the 1970s. And I say all of that to say, story short, you know, my dad came to the West, became rich, went back to Nigeria, and fast forward, his own people, who he was trying to do something for, stripped them of everything, essentially killed them. And he died poor. And we ended up poor. And, you know, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm going to leave him. At, and that's why for me, like, America's freaking dude. Like, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And, and you know, I did a post about this a couple of years ago. I was like, dude, the moment I'm like, yo, America is a horrible place and not a place for me and my family to live, I'm going to go find another place that is. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is if America is that bad. I'm out. I'm going to go to Nigeria. But guess what happens when I go to Nigeria? I'm going to find out how, how bad it really is. You know what I mean? And we look at these other countries and we look at the places where, you know, the, the freedoms that, that, that people have. And there's some countries you can't you can't say anything about your president. You get your head chopped off. You know, you get your head chopped off. You, you can't you don't have the ability to choose who your spouse is going to be. You, you don't have the ability to do all these things because you will get killed. You will get executed. You know what I mean? And even in nations where we think like, I didn't even realize this. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't even realize in Australia there is a freedom of speech. I didn't realize that. Is that like, yeah, I, think, I, I can't I think I heard heard about that while I was there. It was very strange because I always looked at Australia as a much more kind of conservative, you know, slowly catching up to America type country, right? That's right. It's kind of felt that way. The times we'd go over there and train with the Aussies, you know, same attitude, same humor. They're kind of dark and funny. But yeah, it's odd. Like I was, uh, what was really odd to me about Australia was the, during the pandemic, how just crazy they were about locking everything down and just making it uh, impossible for, I mean, th those people literally went fucking nuts. I mean, cause he, he locked them down and that was with 500 cases, right? Yeah. 500. But I want to, first, I want to say thank you for sharing all that. I really do. I know it's a it, that's considered a sensitive subject to like the rest of the world, especially here in the United States. But I feel like two team guys and knowing our own culture, we talk about shit and it's like there's a common denominator with all of us. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a trailer park or a Harvard grad. Buds is the ultimate equalizer. We all come out of it on the end, the same same guys, you know, and we we get the job done. We don't have time for all of the stuff that seems to be happening outside of the military 
or we don't at least give it the attention that most people do, you know, and we just get through it and we do what we need to do to get to the end of the day so that we can wake up and, you know, start a new day. And, yeah, and um, it's not about politics either. It's about no. like, 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 I'm just like both of us. I've served under freaking uh, Republican presidents. I've served under Democrat presidents. I've served, you know, and, and, yeah. and you know, businessmen and all that stuff. At the end of the day, it's like for us, it's like, dude, it, it's a job. We have a job, and, and, and our job is like is, is is to protect this nation, and and, and also to you know the, our brothers who are right into our left. You yeah. know what I mean? And right. you know, not right. the situation is like, hey, this particular politician is making this particular decision, and yeah, we don't agree with it, but you know what? We took an oath, and this is our job, and we're gonna go do this job. And at the end of the day, we're gonna do it with a smile. And we're gonna do it making sure we bring our our, our brothers to our right and to our left back home. You know what I mean? Politics is not in in our community. You're right, and I and I what I extract from everything you said, all great points, great messaging that I think more people need to adopt. Um, but out of the gate, politicians, you know, the media, and bad parenting. Right? I I say it all the time. Like I can't believe sometimes the, the either the bad parenting or lack of parenting that has caused uh, so much, you know, so many problems. Right. And then you got politicians who, you know, choose perks over promises. And once they're in the in that Republican or Democratic cycle of hell, you know, they all become the same, saying the same thing. And I agree with you that there is something behind our government. I'm not a conspiracy guy, but when you're talking about the inner cities or I was just talking to a buddy about, you know, the decrease in population here in the United States, you know, it would not surprise me that. The Republicans, Democrats behind closed door make these big strategic decisions that are ultimately for the greater good of America. And the example we're using is, you know, population. It's declining. And how do we pick it up? And I, I can visualize Republicans and Democrats sitting in a room going, all right, guys, us Republicans over here, we're going to cut this whole we're going to this whole abortion thing. Not allowed anymore. And then the Democrats are like, yeah, 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 good idea. And we'll keep the border open. And then the Republicans are like, yeah, 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 good idea. Because what does that do? It cranks up the population in the United States since nobody is having kids anymore. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, but I, I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, if, you know, it's the Democratic Party that's going to be the ones to take the hammer with your analogy of the inner city, right? They uh, yeah. embrace during, during, their, during their runs, they embrace and act like they're, all for the inner city. And then I think they are very much the same ones that put some kind of red tape regulate regulatory crap in place so that those kids can't move an inch, you know, and, and yeah. it's all like, I don't know. It, it, it's, it, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but I could, I can see it. It seems realistic. And then the last thing is the media, right? The media, you know, uh, as far left and far right as it is these days, you can't trust it. You never know what the truth is anymore. You can't Google the truth. You can't get the truth anywhere, which leaves people just just wondering, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and also, too, you know, I think that it's a, it's all a ploy to keep keep us divided, because if, if our country is, is really, really united, then, you know, one will be able to sift out all the BS from both parties, you yeah. know, and if we can really push back on them. So like the, the, the goal is because, you know, a house divided will fall. And then also, I also believe that there's 
other countries in play. Like you think about what China's doing with TikTok and 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 and, and other countries and how like there's certain social media posts on TikTok that have get pushed up in the algorithm, you know, and that will cause further division and 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 and, and poison the minds of kids. So I think uh, you know the, the goal is to you have like you have to have one side. You have to have red and you have to have, but I'm an independent free market capitalist. You know what I mean? For me, it's like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm just like, you know, like I'm not a Democrat or I'm not a Republican. And and, and because I like, I, I, I hate to, and, and it, and it, and it, it startles me sometimes when I see people who are just like so sold out to one side and like, I don't mind people like, Hey, like I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. Like, what, I don't mind that. As a matter of fact, as a, as a guy who's as guys who served in the military, yeah, we we fought for that freedom so that you can freely choose what political party you want to be a part of and have the freedom to live in this country. So I, that, but what 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 sorrows me sometimes is when I see people are just like so one side, so much so that like when the, a politician on their side, whether a Democrat or Republican, does something wrong, they don't call out that person. And they don't call out that situation. And if somebody on the other side does something right, they just can't congratulate or admit that that decision made that was made was right because they're just so loyal to this one side. And our country is like divided and it's destructive. And I think at the end of the day, I hate to say this, but I think that, that that's going to end up being the downfall of our of, of America is the division. And I think our enemies are laughing at us and they're happy because they're like, yo, they do, like we're we may be aiding in, in their downfall, we may be aiding in their division, but you know, they're they're helping us. They're doing most of the work for us, you know. And yeah. that's why yeah. you know, I, I I listen, I don't watch the news anymore. I can't watch the news. All I can do is like listen to podcasts and listen to specific YouTubers who don't put a freaking slant on the news that they're, that they're putting out there because it's like, you can't listen to the news because it's, it's, it's lies. And a lot of it is, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. And this is, this is when I really learned how BS like the news is. A lot of the news is how stupid it is. I was, I was on it. I was doing an augment. I was doing an augment and uh, we were in, I won't say what country we were in this particular country. And we were getting ready to do, um, this was this was when there was the Arab Spring. So like the Middle East was just like going nuts. Like, like, oh yeah. And, uh, and we were tasked to go to a specific embassy and, and help evaluate the embassy was beginning to get overrun. And uh, as a matter of fact, Benghazi had just happened like either that day or the day before or the day after, whatever the case may be. And so we're in the, we're in our platoon space, getting weighed in for the helos, and the op hasn't even happened yet. The op has not even happened yet. And on the news, uh, breaking news, special forces operators go into this particular embassy and pull everyone out and rescue rescues everyone, and everything is good to go, you know, and and, and this and that. We're we're like getting weighed in to, go to, to get our weight for the helo to go do the op. And that's when I, and it was like, 
it was all about getting the story and breaking the story first. And that could have that could have ended up being deadly for us because now you know somebody got some guy on the other side like, hey, we know what's gonna happen. There's some guy that's gonna probably heal away and rescue everybody. But that's when the the, the, the light went off in my head. I was like, dude, you you can't even trust the news. You know, it's it's it's, 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 it's about. It's about who can break the story first and how is that story going to benefit this side? And, and I have to say, there was a, it was an election year. This was September and it was, it was an election. So the election was gearing up in November. And so there were some people that were trying to like skew the news in a particular way to, look, to make specific politicians look good for the decisions they made. And so, you know, it's, it's sad how, how the news is just this, this, my mom used to call TV in general the idiot box when we were kids. She's like, the idiot box. I don't want you guys watching the idiot box. And, uh, yeah, yeah. but now it, 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 it truly is because it makes idiots of people. It makes them believe lies that, and when you look at it, when you look at all the facts, you're just like, dude, that's clearly a lie, but people believe it as absolute fact, you know? <laughs> so. I know, I know, man. And I had the same event, like, I was in Yemen and they were like, Yemen's on fire. And I'm watching the news in Yemen and, and I'm like, and they're showing, they're showing this. And, and, and it was very apparent to me that what they were showing, the downtown environment that they were showing that was on fire was actually footage from Baghdad, not from Sanaa. And somehow I'm sitting there going, oh, looking out the windows or like, there's nothing going on here. You, you know. So that was my... That was my first time to realize just how far the media will go to, you know, get clicks, you know, get views and ultimately make dollars. And I think, unfortunately, yeah, keep that's, people separate. Keep and, people keep separate. People. and you're right. You know, the separation piece, like I, I concur. If you had a, a truly united America, you wouldn't need the politicians. You wouldn't need half this shit. But, you uh, know, that'll never happen. Um, okay. just, like, just, like in, just like in the inner cities. If, if kids in the inner cities, people in the inner cities truly got what they needed as it relates to resources in school, you know, uh, 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 you know, proper handling of crime and all of these other things, you know, people not being freaking caught on free, getting arrested for attempted murder, murder, and then getting released the next day and all this other stuff. If, if all of that stuff was properly handled, then then these inner cities like New York, where I'm from, would be in a freaking completely better place. But then once it's in a better place, guess what happens? The people are not going to need to depend on the politicians anymore. They ain't going to need to depend on the politicians. You know? So it's like, you know, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory, but there, I think that it's, there's some things that are just like inherent. There's some things that are, you know, weak muscle memory, right? It's like, all right, I'm like, if I go into this room, like I know I'm going to, if I go right, my guy's going to go left. It's just instinctual. And I think that a lot of things with a lot of people, regardless whether they're in a city, rural, whatever, when it comes to politics, it's just so instinctual. It's just like, you know, like things are all right because this person is here or things are going to be all right in two years when I put. And it's just like, no, it's, it's not like you have to you have to do it yourself. You know, you have to get up and, and do the work yourself. And once you do that, then things will be changed. And once more people do that and rise up then the people at the top are going to get scared. Because another thing that a lot of people don't realize is a lot of these politicians, they're doing drug deals with corporations, man. They're doing yeah, freaking no insider trading. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, you know what I mean? And, and making all kinds of money on the side. You know, in Nigeria, you know, where here in the U.S., where people want to get wealthy, what do they do? They, I want to go into 
athletics. I want to go into, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to do whatever the case may be. In Nigeria, when people want to get wealthy, like it's it's the craziest things. They go into politics and you'll have politicians (laughs) in Nigeria. You'll have politicians in Nigeria. No BS. Nigeria is consistently ranked as one of the most corrupt nations in the world like every year. You have politicians who who will win a seat. They'll go in poor, no money. They'll come out billionaires, not millionaires, billionaires would have been billionaires, I right? Believe it. And, I believe and, it. And, 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 and that's what we're having here in the U.S. We have politicians that maybe their intentions originally are, are good. Maybe their intentions initially is say, hey, I want to go in, I want to make my state better, I want to make this country better, I want to do this. But then they start seeing, oh, like, oh, I can make a little bit of money here. Oh, I can be doing it. Maybe if I partner with this person over here, I could do this. Oh, maybe if I approve this deal over here, I could get more money. And then, it's, and then the money becomes intoxicated and the power becomes intoxicated. And before you know it, there's somebody that they didn't intend to be, but they have become. And it's detrimental to the country as a whole. And uh, get these politicians that are millionaires. Yeah, yeah, and that's across the globe. And I, uh, I sum that up as you know, it's capitalism over patriotism. At the end of the day, yeah. you know, they're they're picking the dollar and making that quick butt for the buck for themselves, and not even giving thought to what that means to the country's future. And that's an that's an unfortunate thing that you put that much weight on fucking money. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. man, this is all like. <laughs> solid discussion i fucking love it but i know you're on a timeline and so um we got to see if you're going to survive this fucking podcast buddy so here we go are you ready yeah. <laughs> you better be ready after all that you're fired up now we will be right back after the break all right here we go i'm going to give you the scenario and just roll with it there's no right or wrong except what's on my screen over here. All right. <laughs> All right. For this scenario, you are riding on a crowded city bus when a criminal armed with a knife takes a fellow passenger hostage. The criminal demands to, to be taken to a specific location or he will kill the hostage. All right. So do you A, stay seated and assess the situation? before taking any action or b attempt to approach the criminal and negotiate a peaceful resolution a. and a is correct yeah of course right you want to take your time there's no need making some haphazard decision and get everybody killed right take a moment look listen and smell um okay you notice the criminal seems agitated and nervous and that hostage appears frightened, but unharmed. So, do you A, become the gray man until authorities arrive, or B, try to subtly gather information from other passengers or from the criminal himself? Uh, I would say B. I would say B, B because, because if you have the in- in- information and you can, you know, especially if you gather some information, you can. That could help help you know i did source handling and stuff overseas so that that could that could help essentially you know if the opportunity presents itself to you know psychologically psych about through discussion and that can help to def- diffuse the situation but if you don't have that information, knowledge it's problem so that's why i would choose be yeah and you are correct i agree you got to collect the intel you know um 
And, and, and this this scenario rides very parallel to what was in the news. It's recent, but when this podcast comes out, it'll have been, you know, a couple of weeks after a former Marine, you know, chokes out and kills this dude who is on a uh, subway uh, being aggressive, I guess, towards a woman or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, in the end, there's, there's, you gotta, you've gotta be thinking these days. So anyway, not to get off on a tangent, um, you notice, so yes, you want to, you want to subtly gather information, um, on the other passengers because the reality is like, Hey, is this guy on here all the time? Someone's probably going to go, yeah, he's a regular, he's a little off. This is what he does. Right. (laughs) So that's great information to know. Okay. You learn that the criminal is supposed to be on some kind of medication, right? And is known to carry a knife, which both of those are kind of bad. But do you, A, wait for an opportunity to intervene, or B, confront the criminal directly and try to disarm him? Uh, uh, Say A again? A A is wait for an opportunity to intervene, or B, Confront the criminal directly and try to disarm him. I would say, well, you gotta wait. Out for me, it's all about finding that opportunity, finding that 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 to be able to make sure that that one shot, that one kill, whatever it is that you're gonna do, is effective. And so, but it's gonna be effective if it's an opportunity. If it's a if there's a window of an opportunity, right. so that's why I would choose, I would choose a. Yeah, good answer, man. You're doing awesome, hundred percent so far. Hey, yeah, wait. You got to wait for the opportunity. Opportunity could be a distraction, some disruptor. It could be, you know, you know, the, the bus driver hitting the brakes. I mean, there's so many opportunities. You just got to wait for them. Be patient. Um, as the bus comes to a stop, the criminal becomes distracted. Oh, I just gave it away. What the fuck? By something, <laughs> by something outside the window, giving you an opportunity to act. Do you, A, use physical force to disarm, show a little bit of Jason Bourne action, or B, try to reason with the criminal and convince him to release the hostage? I would say, I mean, if the opportunity's there and he's distracted, like, yeah, talk to him and then give him time to pick the knife and everything back up and get his bearings going, freaking get in there and get done. That's right. A, use force. And, uh, you know, it goes back to all the simple basics, right? You know, you, you, element of surprise is always the best. And when you do it, it better be, uh, you know, violence of action. And uh, you go, go all in. Okay. So you use force. You take the criminal down to the ground. The hostage is freed. Okay. As the criminal tries to fight on the ground, do you A, Use an air choke or be a blood choke. Blood choke. <laughs> there we Based go. That earlier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I think it's important people think about this, especially those in jujitsu know it better than anybody else. And I started doing jujitsu long before it became popular when I was in college. And it was right after UFC one when the Gracie's just fucking crushed everybody. Um, and so I was like, Oh, I got to go check this out. But, you know the, the the big difference here is when you're air when you're basically shutting off air to their to their brain, which is suffocation. Okay, you're suffocating somebody versus which is an air choke versus a blood choke, which they're still can breathe, 
but the blood stops flowing to the brain, which causes their body. Both of them cause their body to go limp. Yeah. But one is far deadly, more, far more deadly than the other. So if yeah. you don't know what you're doing when it comes to a choke, you know, you probably should figure out something else. And yeah. um, this that's probably was what the guy on the train did. He used the uh, he used A, and that's well. What yeah, he, he, he did either A, a blood choke or air choke or a combination of both. But I think his big mistake is he held it. He yeah, held yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah, once yeah, somebody yeah. goes limp, release. Yes, and yes, I think yeah. he he held it and held it and held it. And yeah, fucking people die when that happens. Um, yeah. But if you, know, if you don't know it, then you don't know. Okay. With the criminal now under control, do you A, ask if someone has tape, zip ties, or restraints of any kind, or B, administer first aid to the criminal? <laughs> no, A. That was yeah. A. A, that's right. He will recover since you picked the right choke. He will wake back up once blood flow returns to his brain, and when he does, he'll be secure, not yeah. able to harm anyone else. So good job, yes. Um, you use some duct tape the bus driver had, and you restrain the criminal. So now, do you A, wait for the other passengers, uh, wait with the other passengers for authorities to arrive, or B, just leave the scene because somebody's probably going to sue you? Oh, I would say just wait there. <laughs> yes, that is correct. You got to wait, right? There's too many cameras to think you're just going to discreetly walk away from this. Um, and then obviously do the right thing from beginning to end you decide to wait with the other passengers for the authorities to arrive and when they do you give a statement to the police about what happened do you a offer to help the police with their investigation or b refuse to offer any further assistance and leave the scene oh, hey. Hey, yeah, hey. Probably, you have no reason to uh, leave the scene unless you did something wrong that's right you are the you're the hero you're, uh, you, or at least uh, you're doing what every hot-blooded American should do, and that is defend others. Um, so, yes, you're correct. Stay and help, help out the cops. Um, you offer to help the police with their investigation. You provide them with the detailed account of the events and any further information you gathered from the other passengers or the criminal himself. So now, do you, A, continue to stay vigilant and prepared for any future emergency situation, or B, avoid public transportation altogether and find alternative modes of transportation from here on out. Not to stay vigilant, hey, just... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, do not let fear drive the train, for lack of better words. And Remy, you have survived this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, my brother. Appreciate Thank you for all of your information. So, before we get off here, we talked about a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff, a lot of juicy stuff, but we didn't get a chance to plug. So let's go ahead, unload all the things you've got going on, where people can find all the current things Remy has going on. Uh, go ahead. It's all yours. Yeah, no, just uh, the next thing up is my my uh, fiction thriller, which is right there for those who are watching this. It's uh, called Chameleon. It's an espionage slash political thriller, but 
action thriller as well. And I just pulled from my experience doing human, which is human intelligence and uh, and kind of the characters very, very loosely based off of me and just created this world called Black Box where you have uh, uh, agents like chameleons who can become whatever character they need to become. You got wet agents, which are vehicle experts, ghost agents, which are people who are able to get in and out of anything like a ghost. And then you have aberration agents, which are a combination of chameleons and, and ghosts, but they go deep cover for, you know, decades decade plus so um i created this world and when i envisioned it i was just like oh, i want to do like a big star wars world and, and interestingly it actually started out as a screenplay that i wrote for a studio and uh, uh um a few months later somebody read the script and was like this could be an awesome book series so i got a book deal from it and then now now i have the book so it's chameleon I, i'm doing the read for the audio book and it drops um july 25th um, but if this podcast is out before that, then uh, you can pre-order it and you might get a special gift from me if you uh, pre-order a copy. So um, there we go. And where? Where can they pre-order? Uh, they can pre-order wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Apple Play, uh, but Google Play, Apple, wherever you want to pre-order the book, you can pre-order it. And uh, same thing with the audio as well. So that's the big one. And then I have a movie that's going to go into production this, hopefully this summer. We cast a major star a couple of weeks ago. We, we went out to another major star. And that's a uh, the follow-up to uh, Mahina Trafficking short film, which is on YouTube now. That short film is called The Unexpected. And uh, it's a, a film about organ harvesting. And the feature version of that film, which uh, Gerard Butler and G-Base, the same guys who produced Plane, they're producing that film. Uh, this is going to be the extension of that short film. So it picks up five years later. Later, we just go deeper into the realities of organ harvesting, but putting an action thriller spin on that. So that's the next thing up, and I'll be hopefully going into production on that in, uh, in uh, mid to mid song. Yeah, <laughs> man, that is awesome. I can't wait. And I already got one of your books. I'll be taking a picture of it and plugging it along the way with this podcast. Um, Remy, dude, you're a badass. I love your honesty. I love your experience and everything you brought today. Um, and thank you for all the messaging you're pushing out there. And uh, thanks for all your creativity, man. You got some cool shit going on. I love seeing you when I'm just sitting watching Netflix or Amazon or whatever the hell it is I do <laughs> when I'm bored. And uh, it's it's great to see team guys be successful. And uh, I wish you all the luck with everything else you got going on. Um, and yeah, just thank you for coming on the show and taking the time. No, I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on the show, man. It was fun. It's always good to chop it up with a fellow frogman. So this was definitely a good time. And uh, yeah, thanks for allowing me to share. I appreciate you, brother. Yeah, I appreciate you. And uh, hey, everyone out there, like I always say, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest and be safe until next time. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.